Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back on the 4th of July, I saw a hat that said, Make America Great Britain Again. A good laugh even more so when superimposed on the current relationship between the two countries. Certainly, there is the much-vaunted special relationship between Great Britain and the United States. Not just between the countries in an abstract geopolitical way, but between leaders that have been shaping and reacting to the world at similar times and in similar ways. The modern manifestation of that relationship began with Churchill and FDR, continued with JFK and Harold Macmillan, Reagan and Thatcher, George W. Bush and Tony Blair, and even Trump and Boris Johnson. While Great Britain may have lost its empire, its connection to the U.S. in contemporary times has kept it relevant and dynamic. But after the 75 years that began with World War II, is that relationship due for a refresh? If so, perhaps it will require a degree of honesty about the relationship that has been heretofore lacking on both sides. To examine this, I'm joined by my guest, Ian Baruma. Ian is the Paul W. Williams Professor of Human Rights and Journalism at Bard College. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including Year Zero, A History of 1945. It is my pleasure to welcome Ian Baruma here to talk about his newest work, The Churchill Complex. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, it's a delight to have you here. Talk about what changed in the U.S.-British relationship around the time of World War II in 1945? Well, before World War II, um, the, uh, the relationship had been quite rocky. Uh, after all, some, certain periods, the two countries uh, went to war. But um, uh, what changed in 1940 was that um, Churchill, who was then prime minister, realized that without the United States, the war against Germany could not be won. And so he did everything to woo Roosevelt and the Americans and American public opinion into joining or at least uh, helping the British uh, defend themselves against Germany. And that's when he uh, created this romance of the special relationship and kinship and the English-speaking peoples and so on and so forth. Um, it took a long time to, to woo, since public opinion in America was not particularly pro-British, and the majority of people were opposed to joining the war until Pearl Harbor. Uh, but Roosevelt himself realized that he couldn't allow Germany to start to dominate uh, Europe and let Britain go under. To what extent was Roosevelt aware of, of the wooing that Churchill was doing, the way that Churchill was trying to manipulate, essentially, this relationship? Oh, I think he was very aware of it. He was himself not particularly, he was not an Anglophile, uh, but he was very aware of it um, and, and used it also against the British because he demanded, in, in exchange for lending and leasing um, often rather obsolete military hardware and so on to the British in 1940, before the Americans had joined the war, uh, he, he demanded a high price for it, like uh, the British military bases and uh, a lot of uh, gold and money and so on. So he drove a hard bargain. Uh, so it's not just that the, the British were paying the Americans for suckers, which is something that American politicians uh, were often afraid of, um, it, it was, in some ways, uh, the, the U.S. got the better, the better deal. What was the pushback? What was the, the reaction from certain politicians in the U.S. that really ran counter to what Churchill was trying to do? 
Well, people often in Britain uh, sometimes forget that most Americans or, or many Americans have no roots in Britain. And um, many Americans have German roots or Irish roots, which are not particularly uh, pro-British. And so uh, to woo public opinion in America to come to the side of the British um, was difficult. What happened in the post-war period? Talk about the way the change in that relationship, which was really because of the war and because of what Churchill tried to accomplish, how it started to play out in the post-war period. Well, I think, and this, hence the, the, the title of the book, The Churchill Complex and the, and the Curse of Being Special, I think uh, the story I try, I try to tell is really how a moment of greatest glory in the history of, of, of two nations, meaning uh, defeat of Nazi Germany and the Japanese Empire in 1945, can contain the seeds of future trouble and destruction. And, and what I mean by that is that I think that the myth of Churchill um, has in some ways been a destructive one in that too many American presidents have wanted to sort of uh, model themselves on Churchill as a great wartime hero, and which led to some very foolish and, and destructive wars. Now, obviously, that's not the only reason they, they, they started wars in, in Vietnam and Iraq and, and so on, but it was an element there. Um, and in the case of Britain, uh, winning the war uh, as part of the Anglo-American alliance made the British very reluctant to join other Europeans in building common European institutions. They clung to the relationship with the United States, instead hoping to prolong that moment of glory in 1945, which again, I think, has been uh, destructive to British uh, British interests. And so you can see how the myths of the past can actually cast a shadow on, on subsequent events. Talk a little bit about how American presidents in a contemporary time have looked back upon this and how they've bought into this mythology. Well, let's look at the, the, the run-up to the Iraq war. Now, obviously, the decision to invade Iraq uh, by George W. Bush, uh, there were many reasons for it. But um, one of the things that was very much in the thinking, both of George Bush and Tony Blair, perhaps even more in the case of Tony Blair, was this consciousness of World War II. Tony Blair famously said uh, in the run-up to the war that Britain had to stand with America in the war in Iraq because, after all, only one nation had stood with the British in 1940, which was actually historically wrong. Um, the Americans had not joined the war in 1940. Nonetheless, Blair saw the war against Saddam Hussein very much in terms, and he writes about this in his memoir, reading Ch uh, Chamberlain's memoirs, Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister who appeased Hitler in 1938, um, and, and sitting at Churchill's desk and so on, very conscious of this notion of somehow the relationship of the Iraq war being a revival of the Roosevelt-Churchill relationship in the war against Hitler. And uh, I think that this had, a, had a, a very negative consequence. And did a similar thing play out in the Cold War? I mean, certainly when you look at the relationship between JFK and McMillan and Reagan and Thatcher, I mean, the Cold War also played a role in this. Absolutely. I, and I, don't, I, I wouldn't blame any president or prime minister for, 
before the Cold War, since the, uh, tag the, the, the conflict with the Soviet Union was there, was a given. But I think one of the things that, that well, there were two things, two myths of World War II, which I think had bad consequences. One was the, the myth of Churchill, the idea that, there's a, that, that, that the leaders of the United States and Britain had to somehow replicate Churchill's wartime heroics and go to, go to war when it wasn't necessary. The other thing was something I just mentioned was the, the ghost of Chamberlain in 1938 and Munich and giving in, appeasing the Germans uh, and letting Hitler invade Czechoslovakia. Um, whenever there was a, a foreign crisis, whether it was in Suez or in Korea or, or in Vietnam or indeed in Iraq, uh, the ghost of Chamberlain uh, haunted um, the White House. This, this terror of being like Chamberlain and appeasing a dictator, giving in and so on, um, which, again, I think is an example of, of learning the, the, the wrong lessons from history, because not every dictator is Hitler, not every compromise is the same as Chamberlain's appeasement in 1938. The, the story about Chamberlain's appeasement, the way that story has been replicated over and over again, Talk a little bit about the origin of that story, the way it got the kind of purchase that it has over the years. Well, I think it's because people like to see history uh, as stories of heroes and villains. And, um, and, and we've seen in many movies, some of them quite recent, uh, that Churchill is the hero and Chamberlain is the villain. Uh, what really happened, of course, is always in history was much more complicated. Uh, Churchill was the right man at the right time in 1940 when you needed a bloody-minded romantic to boost the morale of the British people uh, and, and, and who would stand up to Hitler and realize that compromise uh, was impossible. But in most periods, of course, compromise is possible. And Chamberlain uh, was not a bad prime minister. He's the kind of prime minister you need in normal, more peaceful times. He was the wrong man to stand up to Hitler. But the, one of the reasons he didn't stand up to Hitler uh, was that he realized Britain wasn't really ready for a war, nor was much public opinion behind going to war. So you can't totally blame him. He wasn't a villain. Um, he didn't see the logic of the situation at the time. But uh, you know, people are sentimental about these things, and they like to cast uh, some leaders as villains and other heroes. What other options did did he have, really? What other options, you know, besides appeasement, were really there for him? Well, I suppose if Britain and, uh, and, and France had called Hitler's bluff in 1938, said, look, if you uh, invade any other country, we're going to go to war, uh, Hitler's generals and perhaps Hitler himself might have backed down. I think a, a lot of the generals in, in, in Germany were very, very skeptical about going to war. And um, if uh, Chamberlain and, 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 and the French president had put their feet down, I think they may have backed off. But this is speculation. Uh, it's easy to say in hindsight. It's not wasn't so easy for Chamberlain in 1938. Do you think that there is anything in the geopolitics of the time now that really might be the, an ultimate reason to begin to reassess what you call the Churchill complex? Um, well, I think that um, the, the 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 world now. Um, 
it's, it's always dangerous and tempting to think that history is going to repeat itself. So people who are opposed to, let's say, the Trump administration are rather quick to start using words like fascism and so on, which I think is, is mistaken. Uh, but there are certain elements that, uh, that do remind one of the 1930s, and, and uh, the America First rhetoric, of course, is, is one, which uh, was directly borrowed from the 30s and Lindbergh and the, the isolationists at the time. Um, and uh, the rather aggressive nationalism, the, the distrust of international institutions, all these things go against what Churchill and Roosevelt um, tried to build up after the war in the ruins of, 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 of World War II. I feel that one of the great uh, legacies, I think, and I write about this in the book of Churchill and Roosevelt, was the Atlantic Charter that they drew up in 1940 as a kind of blueprint of the world after Hitler would be defeated. And it stressed international cooperation, international institutions, uh, and so on. All the things that our current leaders are uh, quite keen to, to, to break down and wreck. And so, in a sense, I think there is something to be learned for what, from what Churchill and Roosevelt stood for. And how does the nationalism or the anti-Europeanism that we see in Britain today, how does that play from what we're talking about? Well, the anti-EU sentiment, of course, is not shared by, by, by everybody in Britain. It's very polarized on this question, and the polarization uh, is very similar, really, to uh, the political camps that we see in the United States, and that the, 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 the anti-EU voters tend to be rural, uh, tend to be um, not to be among the highest educated, uh, uh, tend to be right-wing, whereas those who were against Brexit were, on the whole, urban, somewhat higher educated and more highly educated, uh, and so on. So uh, it shows the, the division, the polarization of Britain is almost as uh, dramatic as it is in the United States today. Do you think that, that enough time has passed that this, this idea of the Churchill complex will, will fade away, that it's a product of generations past? Well, it's lasted a long time. And I think the, the substance, I mean, to, to the extent that the special relationship after 1945 in the post-war world had a substance, and it did have some, uh, certainly in the shaping of the institutions of the post-World War, the post-war world, but the substance as Britain, Britain's uh, power declined uh, became less and less. And I don't think there is anything much left of the special relationship except in, in, in rhetoric, um, especially on the British side. I think that the any future... Um, uh, presidents of the United States will really have to work with the EU and, and people will be there and there will be sentimental attachments and people like uh, gossip about the royal family and all that kind of thing. But as a real player, I think Britain will mean less and less. Do you, as it does mean less and less, do you see a desire on the part of British politicians at the very least to, to rebuild that special relationship, to use it for their own domestic purposes in Britain? Well, I think this was certainly part of the plan uh, of Boris Johnson and his fellow enthusiasts for Brexit. They thought 
that um, Britain severed from the European Union would build up uh, the relationship with the United States and have special trade deals and, and so on, and somehow regain the glory of the early post-war years. I think, myself, this is a delusion because um, countries look after their own interests. Uh, presidents, on the whole, are not sentimental. And when you look at the American interests, well, they're in, in Asia, in, in the Pacific world, and they're, uh, on the, they're with Germany, uh, the continent of Europe, uh, whereas the attachments to Britain um, are sentimental at best. Well, I, I exaggerate a little. I mean, there is still cooperation in the intelligence community, and Britain is still still has uh, quite a lot of economic power. But relatively speaking, I think uh, I don't think that the relationship will be rebuilt, and I think the, the desire to do so in Britain uh, is is delusional. Of course, the other factor that, that is always the unknown is the degree to which external threats have an impact, whether from Russia, China, or anywhere else for that matter. That is absolutely true, and that is why the high points after World War II of the special relationship usually took place during military conflicts, uh, the Iraq War being the last example. Um, but uh, So that could very well be that the, that the Western world will somehow... Um, have to make common cause because of threats from Russia or China, more likely. Um, but I don't think that common cause will, will take the, the, the form of a special relationship between Britain and America. I think it would have to involve Japan, uh, after all, a greater, much greater economic power than Britain, uh, and uh, the EU. Now, whether there will be this sort of alliance of democracies uh, and, and under Trump, I don't see that happening since he's not very keen on alliances and especially not with democracies. But uh, in the future, that, that may happen. The other thing that, that seems to be or perhaps could be a factor, and, and you see it play out with Trump and Boris Johnson, given all these other factors we're talking about, is generational difference. As, as other generations, younger generations come along, they're starting to in the UK, and, and eventually they will in the US. Generations that don't have this connection, arguably things will change. Absolutely, and not just generations, but also uh, demographic, demographically. Uh, both countries have changed a great deal. Uh, it was already Woodrow Wilson, I think, um, who, who um, said that America should no longer be described as an Anglo-Saxon nation, since there were many people from very different backgrounds. That's even more true today. Uh, the number of people who can still, still have sentimental attachments to the idea of being an, an Anglo-Saxon uh, now has dwindled almost to, probably to insignificance. So I think there's that, and I think that there, certainly the younger generation no longer have any memories uh, of World War II or even living in the shadow of World War II that somebody of my generation uh, still shared. So, uh, yes, I think that the, the sentimental uh, power of the special relationship because of the, of, of the war um, uh, will no longer be a great factor. Do you see it being a factor in British politics? Do you think that it's an issue that will play itself out internally in Britain, the relationship with the U.S., whether it's special or not? 
I think for, for, for some time it will, because um, the, the other consequence of Brexit, if it is as negative as I expect it to be, mm-hmm. I think the economy will decline. Britain's clout will certainly decline. And out of frustration, it is perfectly possible that many people in Britain will become more and more nostalgic for, you know, what, 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 what they might think is their, their finest hour on the Churchill and winning the war and all that. And that nostalgia uh, always involves uh, the United States and the relationship with the United States. But I think it would be very one-sided. I don't think it would be reciprocated from the United States. I don't think that that, that kind of nostalgia plays the same uh, plot in, in American politics uh, that it does in, in, in British politics or English politics. Perhaps. And yet there still is a fascination with the war and the war years, whether it's in literature, whether it's in movies. There, there's still an interest. It's, it's interesting. You would have think that that would have all faded away by now. That is certainly true, and um, any book about Hitler is, is probably um, a guarantee to, to have a wide readership and so on. Uh, the war is still sexy, there's no question. But I think when Americans think about the war, they don't think in the first place of, of the British role and the, the role of the, the, the relationship. They may think of Churchill to some extent, but the interest too in America, as far as I can see, is a military interest, and that involves the war in the Pacific, it involves um, D-Day and so on, but I don't think uh, the British play a very large part in this. Ian Baruma, his book is The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. Ian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you. pleasure.